Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And we're here to talk about game design. This month, we're looking at how five games approach being a sequel differently. We're talking more about games that more directly succeed on previous titles, as opposed to things like Final Fantasy or Chrono Cross that are more just like vaguely following in the footsteps of the previous games. We're looking at how a game... Whew, how do I phrase this in a in a way that makes sense? How a game kind of has a, a through line to carry through between the titles. And we specifically tried to pick examples of games where, outside of maybe one example, a lot around the game changes while the through line remains the same. And if you really pay attention to the, to the theming of the game or the through line of the game, you can see why this is totally a sequel to that. But that in general, when you just take this kind of very superficial look at it, you might go, those don't feel like the same game at all. Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I think the easiest way to get started is to move on to our first game. Disgaea is a tactical RPG series developed by Nippon Ichi that is very focused around comedy and silliness that started in 2003 with the most recent mainline title, Disgaea 5, launching initially in 2015. These games are very good at playing around with typical RPG conventions and in a lot of cases takes them to quite an extreme the original game was designed by Yoshitsuna Kobayashi and produced by Sohei Nikawa, who has continued to produce titles to this day and was the producer for Sky 4 and 5, correct? Yes, that's correct, I believe. We're cheating a bit with this one, but we're definitely looking at Disgaea from the, the more recent ones, 4 slash 5, all the way back. And the main through line that we have to take from the first games up to the current titles are... The emphasis on subversion of tropes, of comedic application, of meta-humor to very typical RPG storytelling. You know, the the stakes are always the great demon lord and the fate of the underworld in, in, you know, in the complete sense of all of the underworld and the actions of heaven and like lofty, lofty things. And our characters are all goofballs. And they're wonderful goofballs. Fantastic goofballs. These games are just such a joy to play in, like, both the mechanic sense, but, you know, the storytelling is really fun to read through the cutscenes. And the comedy extends to the mechanics and to the conventions. Like, a lot of Disgaea is very explicitly, narratively as well, about gaining a lot of power, which ties into the RPG conventions. And a lot of the ways that the sequels add systems is different ways to acquire power. Like, I think the biggest, the most famous, like, example of a meta-humor addition through a sequel is Item World, which was introduced in 2, I think, right? Sounds right. It's been a while. Hi, this is Rowan from the Editing Future. So, actually, Item World was in Disgaea 1. But enjoy the rest of this conversation knowing that. Yep. It's been a while. And item world is where you go into an item to level up your item. And this was a point in, like, games history when 
we didn't do a lot of upgrading a lot of individual items that much. So you've got very early on, like this idea of like going into things to expand them. And Disgaea has a lot of like taking an RPG idea and going like a few steps too far. And each sequel like expands into what it's taking too far usually. So let's talk about some of the specifics about what's really kind of going on here. And the thing about the item world is that when they came up with that idea and implemented it the way they did, they effectively added infinite dungeons to the game because the item world levels were all randomized on entry. Um, and, and it provided a huge amount of content because technically you can just keep improving items indefinitely if you really wanted to. And you get into this loop where because enemies get tougher in the item world as you improve it, first of all, you level up your characters, but they drop better items, which you can then jump into to improve. And so the loop keeps going. Like it's a really been just since Disgaea has no respect for limits, you can go to really stupidly silly numbers if you want to. Yeah. They definitely looked at numbers for levels and stats and asked themselves, well, why does it have to be capped at level 100? Or why does it have to be capped at, I don't know, a lot of games have 255 as a stat cap, for example. And in the old games and old cases, it would be because, well, that might be the limit of how much data can be stored in one integer for a, for a stat point. And, uh, well, with modern systems, especially by 2003, that's not the case anymore. So they kept the stat cap to integer limit. And across the games, that has increased. Now, I don't believe it's energy limit anymore because energy limit is a bit bigger than what it is. Um, but it's still like 65,335 yeah. or whatever those limits are. Correct. And it very much is just a game that you can complete in a very traditional RPG number sense. You can complete the main campaign by about level 70 with about, you know, let's say 500 of each stat or something like that. But if you wanted to push it, it can go up to... Levels have always been capped at 9,999, I believe. Just to give, you know, characters a, like, ending growth point where you can then reincarnate them and do it all over again. But there's sort of no need to get that high in the general series. No, absolutely not in the main campaign story. And so this is the through line that we're kind of talking about that this has always kind of existed from early Disgaea. And what they've added are systems that make this process more engaging, more interactive, more fun, and gives you a sort of payoff for these big numbers. And these payoffs aren't going to be story beats, but these payoffs are going to be breezing through levels that you previously found difficult or just completely stomping on the main campaign. Because if, if you're a player like me, I am. I like grind every now and then. I don't have the brain to play story every time I sit down to play a game. So, you know, when I'm in those moods, I go and do an item world. And that, like, gives you so much power that when you do eventually come back to the story, you find yourself way overpowered. And that's actually a really great feeling for me. I like that feeling of just being out outclassing the challenge that's been set before me. The comedic tone in Disgaea, like, works with that to some extent. Like, you're playing larger than life characters it sh it feels like it should be you either succeed or you fail in a big way there's no in-betweens there's no careful delicate balancing i mean there is on the design side i'm sure yeah yeah in the play experience it feels like it's not there in a very deliberate sense sky is a franchise like there's this through line of continuing all these games are very deeply the same experience but just little enhancements here and there, which is like, I think, the the typical sequel in many ways. Like, this is the 
ideal sequel, air quotes, in that it takes something that we like. Yeah. yeah. Something we like, adds a new story to it, adds some new mechanics that are generally improvements. The series doesn't take away things. And if it does, it like takes it away to give you something that's very similar, but a little different. Yep. So one example I can think of off the top of my head is the we talked about item world, where you go into an item to improve it. Um, there's also something called the Kara world, where you go into a character to improve their stats that way. And the specific, like, this is less Infinite Dungeon and more minigame. The specific minigame has changed from Disgaea to Disgaea as they, like, kind of settled on a specific type of minigame they wanted to play. In Disgaea 5, it's effectively a kind of board game thing. Um, in Disgaea 4, it was a bit more dungeon TRPG oriented. And so, you know, like, the, the, the system Kara world exists, but the implementation is different. And so, yes, the it is, in my opinion, air quotes, conceptually perfect sequel. As in, if you're going to learn about how to make a sequel, this is the very big abstract concept of take the core theme and through line and then expand on it. I guess rather than saying ideal, maybe iterative sequel is the better term, really. Maybe. Compared to like the other things we're going to talk about, which do iterate on what came before, but they're a bit more dramatic in how they depart from the original titles. A very telling aspect of Disgaea is I will always, if someone expresses interest in in the franchise or the series, I love the earlier games that I played. I think the story in 2 is one of my favorite Disgaea stories, and obviously the characters from 1 are some of the most iconic video game characters if you are like in this sphere, right? But I could not recommend playing any game other than five, the latest one, because I every game adds so much quality of life that it's really strange to go back to them, to, to older titles once you played them. Here's a very, very simple example. In five, well, in a in a tactical RPG, a character has the amount of movement they have based on the amount of square um dictated by the amount of squares they can move per turn in five you can put a character somewhere decide i don't really like that just click on uh, select that character select move select anywhere else within their original sphere um radius of movement and it just works but in four and before i'm pretty sure in four and before if not that in three and before you had to undo a move to be able to move the character again and it's such a minor thing but But if you're going to play this for a long time which you probably will um it adds up it does it does it's a quality of life thing is the game unplayable because of that no but would you want to play the better version if you had the option absolutely yeah in many ways this is not unlike the approach that a lot of long-running more systemy games run into like things like monster hunter yes there are reasons to go back and play generation two but you probably want to play either double cross or world or things like this, this um, EA Sports games generally are like better as they go on. Maybe sometimes generations like, no, not so great. Disgaea is in that sort of mold. Every successive, successive game, yeah, every successive game is the same but more, the same but better, and the same but refined. With generally different characters, like this is one thing, it's generally an entirely separate plot compared to those other sort of more iterative sequels. That's actually a good point to bring up, yes. And they bring back old characters, so it rewards you for being a long-time player who, like, knows who Axel is or something. But if you don't know them, it's like, ah, oh, this is another funny character, haha. 
you know, you get the feeling that, oh, this character is being treated with a bit of reverence. It's probably a cameo. Then you pay attention and then you realize, oh, that was very fun and very funny and it was a cool interaction and they didn't really impact the story very much because they're a cameo character. It's not their story anymore, you know? And there's, I don't want to get too far off the rails here for this discussion. There's a very small um, idea we could bring up that, in fact, Disgaea is less like, he's a franchise, but the franchise for Nipponichi maybe is almost more their strategy RPGs. And Disgaea is kind of the melting pot for a lot of the characters from their other games to come in, especially in like DLC and post-game content, which the game has a large emphasis on. But I think that might be it for this more iterative sequel. Let's move on to what was both an iterative and revolutionary sequel. Alright, moving on. We have Mass Effect 2, made by Bioware. Last decade, with an influence that we still see today. The first, oh, sorry, Mass Effect 2 specifically was released in early 2010. Um, this RPG shooter hybrid was directed by Casey Hudson and designed by Preston Watermanuik. Now, we normally don't have too long of a credits list, but it is definitely wrong to not mention the two lead writers in this case, Mac Walters and Drew Carpershin. And I apologize if I butchered any of those names. Um, but yeah, here we are. Mass Effect 2. Unlike Disgaea, where we can talk about the franchise as a whole because of how solid the through line was and it was just this expansion of you know quality of life and mechanics and, and really just ideating on a core concept, we are specifically focusing on Mass Effect 2 and this transition from Mass Effect 1 to 2 because on the surface level, those don't look like the same games at all. Yeah, I mean, they they share a lot in common. Like, they're both clearly the same genre. They're both mixing the same things together. But they take, like, deeply different approaches to how they're structured and even, like, their audience. Because Mass Effect 2 has to function not just as a sequel to Mass Effect 1, but also as a standalone title. Because it was the first Mass Effect game released for PS3. So in many ways, this functions as both a sequel, a first entry, and in that sense, kind of a reboot all at once, which is a lot to do for a game, to be perfectly frank. It is a lot to take on, and it handled most of it gracefully, is what I would say. Yeah, it took bits that people found in a general sense, like if you look at reviews of Mass Effect 1, People say, like, the inventory management's a pain, wandering around environments is a pain, the Mako cards, the Mako card? The Mako sections, yeah. The Mako sections are not great. And they took a lot of, like, the common complaints that have been listed in a lot of reviews and discussions and did a lot of cutting. Like, in many ways, Mass Effect 2 is a much smaller game, not in terms of, like, the amount of content, but as in, like, in the amount of space it occupies i guess i would say contextual scope so not the scope of the game or what you're accomplishing in it but how personalized everything becomes everything becomes a lot more personal for your main character commander shepherd in mass effect 2 so let's get to a couple of more specific things um let's start with the with the ps3 and, and genesis right so the game released on playstation 3 and of course there was no mass effect 1 data to carry through which is a big part of that play experience. So it starts off with the PS3 version having this bonus DLC called Genesis that lets you 
have a very, very condensed run-through of the first game's plot through a short comic book set of scenes, which you can make a few key choices with. It's effectively an interactive way to set the flags of what you did in Mass Effect 1 if you played it, or for you to make up your Mass Effect 1 career. Yeah, and this DLC was later released on every other platform so that people who just wanted to play Mass Effect 2 onwards could skip out on one. So in that sense, kind of Mass Effect 1 wasn't erased from canon per se, but the play experience has sort of been pushed aside over the years, I think, for that first game. As someone who has played through all three games twice, I will say this about Mass Effect 1. It it tells a very, very important beginning to Commander Shepard's story, and it tells it extremely slowly, or what feels like extremely slowly. And a big part of that is how the game itself controls and feels, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what something like the Genesis um, DLC uh, pack allows you to do is just to very quickly go over the key points because a lot of what's introduced in Mass Effect 1 is then built on in 2 and then later in 3. And those are important things for the world and context, but it doesn't need to be experienced in the same pace anymore if the pacing was a weakness of the first game. There's a lot of critique of Mass Effect 2 being a little bit too much like a AAA shooter in that there's not much space between plot points to like have a world that feels real. It does feel, to many players at least... Like corridors. Like corridors. It 100% does. And as someone who doesn't like wandering environments, I'm definitely a little bit more keen on Mass Effect 2's approach, although I, I still think there's a bit too much space between things in it, honestly. Yeah. As much as some people have leveled that critique at it, Mass Effect 2 does have an open world, and you absolutely walk through areas, and you go... That's a chest-high wall. Somewhere, sometime in this game, I might be having a firefight here. Hmm. You know, you you definitely get that feeling walking around the world. And it, it feels like a game. There's nothing wrong with feeling like a game. Mass Effect 2 feels like a game. Mass Effect 2 does not try to pretend to be this super organic open world where you get to tell this grand space story. No, it feels like a game. And it, in my opinion, does that very well where it zeroes in on it and it goes, no, you're here to play this tight gameplay experience that is linked together with this deep and rich story. And that tight gameplay experience just didn't quite exist in one. And so they made this very, in my opinion, courageous decision to just go, scrap that, let's start from scratch. And we'll figure something out that is better, like more responsive, more fun, and you know, more typical shooter for sure. But, you know, that is actually engaging as opposed to hiding behind cover until your shields regenerate. They had to make a few, like, really strong choices here. Like, Bioware is an RPG company, so for them to turn down the complicated stats dial, not that Mass Effect 1 was a terribly complicated system, but it was certainly less complicated. Turning down, like, a lot of equipment complications as well, they dialed those back so that players could go much more efficiently from story beat to story beat, which is where they decided this game truly shined. And that is clear even as someone who does not get along with the shooter side at all. On the other hand, right, let's talk about the story side of it. That, in my opinion, was just enhanced into. Yes, like you've got the obviously brilliant opening that is well, well loved. And it, it's interesting how well that opening actually works with the zero context that I came into it with for the first time. 
And I'm sure it's much more impactful for someone with all that context, like you. I believe you have two different pause menus in the game. And prior to the opening sequence, in as in like you have a minor amount of control in the opening sequence, I think if you pause in that, you get the Mass Effect 1 looking pause menu is my gut instinct. But I might be carrying that over from Mega Man. I'm not sure. Mega Man Zero. I'm not sure. It, it, oh, this 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 playthrough is even more detached in time for me from that opening time. But yes, such a powerful opening to see the ship that you spent so much time on get blown up. The spoilers, I'm sorry. It's a 10-year-old game at this point. The opening 10 seconds of the 10-year-old game. Yeah, yeah. And it does a very good narrative thing where it allows you to rebuild your character in a way that, like, in-universe makes sense because they rebuild you from, like, the cellular level. Yeah, yes-ish. I mean, it'd be, ish. it's kind of weird that, like, you're a woman last time and you've regrown as, like, a very different woman or man. But the world doesn't care. It's sci-fi. It's tech. It's all good. Hey, it made an attempt at justifying the difference in look. It does. And that is, like, very cool. Because the lighting engine and modeling is very different. What looks good in one might not look as good in two or vice versa. Yeah, maybe yeah. you want a different look to suit the new engine better. And hey, look, if 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 separate it through time, you just decided I want a different looking shepherd, go for it. It's fine. Another kind of thing to like point out here is once you're through that opening sequence, you quickly fall into step four, how the game delivers story and dialogue. The very now infamous dialogue wheel is still there with the same ideologies of what is in the top right what's in the bottom right what do left options mean what does middle right option mean all of those feelings are still intact and if you learned that from one it'll continue on in two and mass effect 2 adds like like any good iterative sequel it adds a little bit to that so it adds um qte reactions basically right to certain um conversation situations yeah uh the the more frequent interrupts are renegade interrupts but yes effectively you can interrupt a conversation just cut in and be like no i'm, I'm getting this this here in now or i'm just gonna deck this guy because he's you know like too mouthy and yeah that, that's totally a thing that's added onto their dialogue systems to make it another avenue for players to express themselves now very importantly this was a new system. This was added on from one, and it's not the best system in two, you know, uh, in terms of like social expression of Shepard and consequences thereof in the social discussions that will follow. There are better people who've talked in much better depth than we can uh, about this in the time that we have. And yeah, if you're interested in that, please go and look those up. I think that uh, the through line being the story and the what word I'm looking for yeah social dialogue system yeah the expression considering everything around that as expendable almost and worth reworking from the ground up to create a better experience around that through line is like the lesson to take away from this and it's really about how smartly they identified that through line because it, it can't have been an easy decision i want to reiterate this to throw out how mass effect one played yeah they they recentered the game more or less very much so and that's sort of what we see with a lot of series like over many years they center on something and that can be sometimes different to what fans initially expect from a series they love correct 
Now, okay, here's a very simple, very minor example of this. Mass Effect 1 establishes this concept that guns no longer have ammo. They just overheat because they can fire infinitely, right? Mass Effect 2, in an effort to become more shootery and, dare I say it, more uh, have more general appeal, reintroduce the concept of ammo. But they do this in-universe via the explanation of, well, technology advanced. The current weapons actually are stronger than they used to be in Mass Effect 1 and would pierce any shields that existed in Mass Effect 1. But the trade-off is that they heat up even faster now. And so in order to deal with this, we have universal heat clips. So instead of expending ammo, you have this heat clip that is universal across all your guns that you just click out and put a new one in and it functionally as a shooter it's ammo and it's important because part of good game gun feel is the act of managing your ammo that adds interesting elements to gunplay and gun fighting and so it was important to introduce this even though it felt like a step back in universe of going well we had infinite firing guns and now we have guns that we have to control ammo for they explain it away in game with universe logic and they did it because it improved the gameplay of the game. Which is an important, like, balance that games have to manage, which is the narrative and, like, gameplay benefits. Sometimes a narrative conceit can really hinder a gameplay experience. And making that choice can be really tough when you realize that it's being an issue. And it wasn't, like, a deep narrative thing, that gun thing, but it was an established piece of lore. And changing lore is difficult, especially in the modern age of the internet. Thinking of the opposite of the modern age of the internet... We're going to look at our next game, which is a little bit more historic and at the start of a different decade than Mass Effect 2. Street Fighter 2, possibly the defining game of the 2D fighter in so many ways. This particular title came out in arcades in 1991 was directed by Hiroshi Matsumoto and produced by Yoshiki Okamoto and designed by Akira Nishitani and Akira Yasuda. So Street Fighter 2 is sequel to the the uh, difficult to play perhaps nowadays Street Fighter 1. It's a very that was a very rough experience that is very difficult, not very friendly. A lot of things that we associate maybe with how Street Fighter should feel nowadays Street Fighter 1 does not do a lot of that. It's really this 1v1, usually an AI opponent, that had sort of a token player versus player option as well in it. And what's really interesting is that originally planned as the game to carry the name Street Fighter 2 was Final Fight. Final Fight was built up to be its sequel. But they decided this didn't feel like very Street Fighter-y. They wanted to make something else out of this, and so they changed up the characters and made it just an entirely separate thing. Street Fighter 2 itself changes the emphasis of Street Fighter 1 from being about fighting an AI opponent that you might end up fighting some human opponents along the way with to being fundamentally about fighting other players. So let's talk a bit about that because I don't think many you know, of our listeners would have... I'm sure in some way you've seen something that looks like Street Fighter 2, but very few people, if you're not in the space, will have seen anything about Street Fighter 1. So a very quick note here is in Street Fighter 1, you can only play as Ryu. 
or in two-player mode, Ryu and Ken. But Ken is even more of a clone of Ryu than usual. Correct. And although Street Fighter 1 actually has a decent cast of, what is it, like eight characters? Yes, they're not playable by the players. They're only for the AI to play as. Yep, absolutely. So just wanted to like put that out there very quick. And that's how different of these two these games are, even on a surface level. And on that surface level, like they change right from the UI even. In the original game, we see two life bars, one over the other, which is fine. Like That is how you can display life bars on a screen. But in the Two Fighter 2, which focuses more on player versus player, and two players sitting on like their sides of the cabinet, more or less, we see that the life bars are divided to the left and right sides of the screen to suit where players are sitting to start with. And this ends up being convention that we follow through up until today. And Yeah, like the only notable ex- um, outsiders to this are like Smash Brothers and like other like fairly non-traditional fighters. Yeah, and if it's a 1v1, you know, 2D, side-by-side, effectively, kind of feeling game, it makes sense. One player's life bar is on the left, one player's life bar is on the right. And we say it makes sense, but, like, this is... Street Fighter 2 was the progenitor of a lot of these conventions, so at the time, it's not a given, really. No, absolutely not. And a lot of things changed like that, right? It's not just that they did the UI differently, but... It is a very indicative of a shift in mentality of the values of what was important to Street Fighter 1 and what will be important to Street Fighter 2 by the time it comes out. So a quick anecdote that is going to be like multiple degrees of removed in terms of when I heard it, etc. Is that in, in the lead up to the design for Street Fighter 2 and why Street Fighter 2 came about, keeping in mind the context of this being the height of the arcade era, there is this notion that you have kind of two duality, a duality in player experience where if you're good, you sit on the cabinet for ages and you never really put in more tokens or quarters or whatever the currency is at that point because you're good. You don't die that often. So, you know, the, the stream of tokens relatively controlled. But if the game is harsh and just kills you over and over again and it's trying to I, a lot of us would have heard the, the term um, token muncher or quarter muncher, where the game is just going to kill you to get lives out of you to eventually force to continue. So that feels bad for the player. And the first example feels bad for you know the, the arcade, the establishment, because you don't, get, you don't put in as much money. So one of the supposed ideas leading into Street Fighter 2 was how do you make a game where players um, do churn through a decent amount of money while they're playing, but don't feel like they've been cheated out of that money by the game. And, you know, Street Fighter 2 is 100% a solution to that because the entire point of it, while you can play against the PC, is to play against other people. And so you don't lose against the AI when you go in with your token and you get challenged by someone else. You lost to another person. And that might even incentivize you to come back and, you know, put in more tokens to try to get that win back. Very much. And in that sense, it also, you know, by being coming back and like beating other people, you end up creating a lot of attachment to the cast of characters. Here you have a lot of different characters you can associate with. I think in the original, it's like eight-ish characters, which is a lot for the time, since they have very, very different movesets. And they're all fairly balanced, question mark, for the time at least. Like they're much more balanced than they could have been for sure. Um, and so players get like uh, a real association with these characters. Oh, I go to the arcade and 
I always get beaten by these Chun-Li players that creates like these big narratives and legends around the scene in kind of the way that the first game wants there to be a narrative around these characters but can't do because other players don't get to play as Sagat. But in 2, well, takes a few entries for 2 to let you play as Sagat specifically, but you can eventually with 2 though. And because now in 2, everyone has to have access to all the tools one of the big like game feel differences is that all characters are much more mobile compared to the original Street Fighter 1 where movement is not pleasant. Um and special moves are very very doable for most characters. And while yes, special move inputs are not trivial for many players in comparison to 1 where me as an experienced fighting game player could not get any special move out consistently moving to two flawless hundred percent accuracy from one which is such a big feeling difference even like imagine if you're just not good at those inputs how impossible they are in one on top of two's difficulty but yeah because of the player versus player elements they had to make all the options much more accessible to all the players and two does that from both like a players can be where they want to be on the screen much more easily so they can do the actions they want to do much more efficiently. So really, we're talking about the through line here of Street Fighter 1's through line was combat. One versus one combat. And that is 100% the through line of Street Fighter 2. But what was stripped away was the single player focus. And what was added on was this emphasis on competition between humans as opposed to people playing against the machine. And it wasn't even stripped away per se, but it was de-emphasized. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's a much better way of uh, phrasing it. Because there still is an arcade mode. There's arguably a more cohesive story across more characters. And the arcade mode feels, I think it's a bit longer overall as well. Like there's a bit more to it. Both as a play experience, because playing the characters is a much more thorough and complete experience. And you could play through as multiple characters even to get different play experiences. And then you have lots of different experiences. Our next game has a little bit more of a roguelike sense to it. Having said that, before we move on, there is probably one last thing we should mention in terms of specifics about Street Fighter 2. And that is how specifically the special moves got easier. So in Street Fighter 1, uh, for those of you who understand what this means, the motions had to be frame perfect in terms of when the joystick was down, down, forward, forward. If you don't understand what that means, don't worry about it. Just understand that it, it was difficult to get that timing exactly perfect every time. You had to do three one-sixtieth of a second inputs on Four. the correct frames. Four, Four sorry. Including the, including the, the attack button too. that comes after the motions. But, then go, but in Street Fighter 2, what they did was they added some leniency to that. So instead of, for example, one-sixtieth of a second, you might have a twelfth of a second. Probably not that much, but... Something like that, right? Maybe a 20th of a second. Yeah, a lot of the Street Fighter 2 moves have about um, four to seven frames of um, variance, I think, to them. There you go. With a weird layer of RNG, like I think it's like some moves literally have like a randomized four to seven frames of input for, of input window. Just, you know, to keep you on your toes. So sometimes it can literally be a roll of the dice as to whether you were fast enough or not. And it's not about the move, it's about the context of the game state as well, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, a bit of that too. Anyway, not to get too bogged down in that. Um, what this means is that special moves are easier to perform. You have to be less perfectly precise. 
all the time, which is hard, especially in a competitive situation where there's a lot of pressure on the line. The unintended side effect of this, though, is that, so take an example here, right? Um, the motion ends with, let's say, the forward direction and then tapping an attack button, like, say, a punch. With enough leniency, what can happen is that you could tap the punch first before the forward motion is fully registered, and the game will still give you your special motion, your, your Hadouken, your fireball. Awesome, that's fantastic. It, it's, it's more generous to the player. However, with enough leniency there, what could happen is you could punch first, because you tapped the punch button first, technically, and still get a fireball outside of it, because the game goes, oh, no, no, the player meant to do that. That's fine. The punch happened. Let's throw the fireball out here. And also, one of the ways that Street Fighter 2 does lenience that one does not is special moves can trigger on a press and a release of a button. Uh, for anyone who cares, that's called negative edging. And for the most part, in like a player usage way sense, it doesn't matter that much. It does matter sometimes, because at high-level play, everything matters. But in terms of general lived experience, it just doubles the chance of pressing the button in the window that the game wants you to have pressed it. Because you have two options. One went down, one went up. But the end result of this is we got the first baby versions of what is later known as combos. You know, it's very often said Street Fighter 2 accidentally implemented combos. Um, and that's our attempt at very quickly describing how it accidentally happened. There's, you know, a bit more complexity to it than that. But that's, that's about it. it. It happened because they wanted players to be able to execute these special moves more easily, make them slightly less sometimes only special. Mm. And they did that, and it created, and it became a big part of Street Fighter's identity as a game. Like, Ryu is iconic for the Hadouken. Ken, more so than Ryu, for the Shoryuken. Those are iconic video game sounds and phrases. And in Street Fighter 1, you don't feel that as much. In 2, they sort of are the identity of the game in many ways. Uh, that was a relatively brief aside. Now, we'll move on. Our next game, a roguelike. Risk of Rain 2 is a roguelike third-person shooter that has been in early access for a while as of the time of recording and will be released possibly just before this recording is released um, on August 11th, 2020. So it is a over-the-shoulder 3D environment shooter with a focus on collecting unique items in a roguelike fashion. Risk of Rain 2, like the first one, is developed by Hopu Games, designed by Duncan Drummond, Paul Morse, and Jeffrey Hunt. The, the real big thing to talk about here is the real big superficial thing to notice when you look at the two games. Risk of Rain 2 is a 3D game in a 3D environment with jumping, strafing, shooting, um, be, you know, third-person mechanics. Whereas Risk of Rain 1 is a flat-looking, side-on platformer. Um, and even then... It is relatively different from a lot of its contemporaries because of how far back the camera sits on Risk of Rain 1, giving you massive amounts of information from the terrain and environment around you. And that's actually something that's, I, when I play Risk of Rain 1 and 2, I feel that's continued in Risk of Rain 2. Like, the camera is pulled pretty far back for a third-person shooter. 
partially because this is not a shooter that's about immaculate accuracy, although it does, you have to be a little bit accurate, but it's pretty forgiving in its hitboxes, right? Absolutely, especially with certain classes that allow for fuzzy aiming in the case of the Huntress, or even aimbots in the case of the Engineer, where you can place down turrets that can shoot for you. There, even right off the bat in its transition to the new format, it does maintain that like identity of size and scale that is very striking about the original. And this sort of is emblematic, this game at least, sorry, of the transition a lot of franchises had to do and work out of how do you take an idea born in a 2D world and bring it into 3D. Mario, Sonic, Zelda, all these different franchises had to work that out and it's a challenging thing because you have to reevaluate what your game is and doing that in the modern indie context i think is just really fascinating when risk of rain 2 was initially announced it was met with a lot of let me be kind and say trepidation because very few people could imagine how you could go from this you know 2d game that has a very specific game feel and Everyone was very concerned about, there's no way it can play the same. You know, it, the, the entire mode of play is changed. It cannot possibly have the same feeling as the first game. Was the, feeling, uh, was the sentiment, sorry, that um, a lot of people had around the announcement of Risk of Rain 2. However, as time has gone on, as we've been in early access, Risk of Rain 2 feels like it just really built on the first and feels like a very proper sequel to the first, despite the challenge in adopting a third dimension. And to be fair to those players' critiques almost, like it does feel different in like a second-to-second kinesthetic way, like because the original game was very deliberate and set in its a lot of its movements, whereas the new game is much more free-flowing, I guess we could say. So I can say the game feel feels the same, but here's a fact of it, right? In Risk of Rain 1, your character can't be blindsided. You can see everything around your character. Your character sits in the middle of the screen. You can see every angle of approach to your character. But a fact of a 3D over-the-shoulder view is something can be in your blind spot behind you. And sometimes that feels like you get hit out of nowhere. And sometimes these hits at high enough difficulties will just end a run. So that is slightly different. However, when I talk about game feel being the same, I am referring to the way that, remember, this is a roguelike, how the runs feel changes as you stack item effects on top of each other that synergize with the way, very specifically, each of your characters, uh, I forget what they're called, survivors play. Yeah, so the items in Risk of Rain, they're very diverse. A lot of them are fairly passive, like you don't directly activate a number of them. But they do impact your playstyle quite a bit once you get to grips with what they're actually doing to your character. And that progression of getting items and working out what you want and whether you've got enough to move on to the next point or not is really key. Like, if you're about to fight a hard boss or, you know, you want to do the teleporter for an area, you might decide, okay, I'm going to go a few more items just to see if I can get something to finish off this current point in the build I am, right? Like, that's a, a feeling that you might have in the game. 100%. And I just realized, as we were talking about this, we have done you a great disservice and not described oh, the game to people who because, may not have played it. Because there's a very distinct structure to Risk of Rain 1 and 2 that they both follow. Correct. So, very loosely, let me attempt to do this in as little time as possible. You load into a level, 
and time starts ticking down. As time continues, the difficulty of the game will increase. And your goal is to progress as far into the game as possible. And what this entails is activating a teleporter event that will teleport you to the next level. And then it repeats itself. So what do you do in each level? Well, you want to run around killing enemies to gain experience and money, currency, gold, whatever you want to call it, in order to open chests, which then drop items that make you better. So you, you increase in power via two vectors. Uh, gaining experience to gain levels, which increase raw stats, or gain items that you know do things like you move slightly faster, your shots can slow enemies, you know stuff like that. And that's the core loop. And that core loop is the same in both Risk of Rain one and two. And once you're ready, you go to the teleporter. You activate what's called the teleporter event. You have to survive the event. The boss will spawn. You have to kill the boss, and then you continue through the teleporter into the next stage. Throughout all of this, as another through line of the games of both Risk of Rain 1 and 2, a difficulty timer, um, the timer that I mentioned before, is ticking. The longer you take, the harder the game gets. And this isn't just, a, yeah, if the timer goes up to the next one, you know, they get one extra damage or something like that. This is pretty significant jumps in difficulty if you're not ready for it. Early on, it's not too hard to keep up with the increase in stats and damage that the enemies have. But it very quickly ramps up to the point where, you know, one misapplied ability that puts you in the open will get you killed. Like, all roguelikes have this tension of there's some kind of countdown to stop you moving forwards or stop you staying in an area forever to grind up. And But this game's tension is very deeply different to other roguelikes. And by preserving that, it maintains, like, one of these key feelings of the Risk of Rain experience. Like, if it had become a hunger meter, like in every other roguelike, it wouldn't be Risk of Rain anymore. I, I think that's sort of it. So, we're moving on to our last game, which more weaponizes the distant past in terms of being a sequel. The Legend of Zelda Link Between Worlds is the 2013 sequel to The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, and one of the very rare direct sequels in the Legend of Zelda franchise, developed by Nintendo EAD, directed by Hiromasa Shikata, produced by Eji Aonuma, and designed by Koji Takahashi. Now, the Zelda games, for those who don't know them very well, are a series of somewhat open-world action-adventure games with a focus on puzzle-solving that are sometimes called action RPGs, and that's debated because they don't generally feature much in the way of leveling up the direct protagonist, Link. So what to me is really interesting about The Link Between Worlds as a sequel is that unlike most Zelda games, which are less sequels and more another entry in the franchise... This is very much choosing to build upon and succeed on a different entry's world and ideas and mechanics and to expand upon them and play with them. It's very much weaponizing the use of being a sequel because it also played counter to what the Zelda series had become for a while. So by calling it a sequel to A Link to the Past and not the next game after Skyward Sword at the time the previous game... It's telling a lot to our audience to expect something that's not like what Zelda had become, but like what Zelda was. And I think that's like the really powerful, interesting thing about this game to me and why it's on this list. It very easily could have been 
another Legend of Zelda that looks like Link to the Past, and, you know, that was it. It could have ended there. It, it, it could have just superficially borrowed its looks to capitalize on nostalgia. But Link Between Worlds does so much more than that. And so it uses a lot of similar things to set you up with certain ideas, like you've got similar spaces and locations, like the environments are very similar. The art style recreates that very sort of geometric flat look of A Link to the Past, as opposed to something more in line with Zelda games at the time. You've got a very similar structure of collect three things, then collect a bunch more things once you've unlocked a certain option. And it's and it allows you to twist on those things. So the biggest two twists in the game are the turning yourself into a painting on the wall to navigate an area, which means that these spaces that were fundamentally 2D in their original incarnation now actually really use the third dimension in a way that they hadn't before. Complete with changing the camera angle, sorry. And not in a way that's a lot, you know, a lot of other games went from 2D to 3D and, hey, look, it's a third dimension. No, you're still thinking of a lot of these spaces as, you know, this pseudo um, 2D world. Yeah, these spaces are played in a 2D manner, but existed in a 3D sense, which is very unusual for this progression to 3D. And I mean... I don't know if we could heap enough praise on this mechanic. A lot of people have said how really cool it is and how it opens up this super familiar space with this mechanic. And yeah, it recontextualizes a lot of what you know, because there's a good critique of the game potentially that it's just borrowing too much to the point that, as I think you already mentioned, people sometimes refer to this as, oh, it's not really a sequel. It's more of a remake, which I deeply disagree with. But like the fact that that debate can exist is really meaningful in telling about how much it has or hasn't borrowed from its predecessor. There's a lot to be able to say about that discussion and about how the game is presented and stuff. I don't want to like go too much into that because it's not the point here. But it is a really good example of how you can use a lot of superficial prompts to the player, to the watcher, to the observer to say, this is the mindset you should be in, this is what this game should remind you of. And that is 100% an ability that sequels have as well, that you know a couple of our previous examples haven't really talked about, haven't really capitalized on. And by having a sequel to a game, you have a set of expectations. And so if this game had been The Legend of Zelda um, Adventures in Low Rule, that would have been you know a great game, probably. But by making it a direct successor to Link to the Past, the item buying mechanic of this game and the change to how dungeon items work feels sort of more revolutionary. The tool set is mostly similar items from the original Link to the Past. So players who have played the original have a good idea of like what items they might want in certain ways, which is powerful, meaningful, and cool. Like you can come in with advanced knowledge and get something from knowing that secret from the past. And sometimes that knowledge can also ruin you in equal measure which is really fun like it's playing on that previous knowledge how much have you played of the original i think you haven't played much link to the past right no not very much at all uh, a bit through the opening into the sanctuary and that's about it so i guess a really interesting thing that i'm going to put you on the spot with is as someone who hadn't played the game that this is like to me very deliberately playing off being a sequel to did you feel at all lost or like, oh, I'm clearly missing something here? Never. 
this this is such a well designed game link between worlds it for the record as well is the only legend of zelda i've ever played to completion i have not finished any other legend of zelda game that's really interesting because to me i feel like this game fundamentally is like so deeply a thing like a critique and a management of this franchise like this is going skyward sword nope we're not doing like things like that anymore we're taking this new path we're being inspired by the old games it's set up things for breath of the wild in that sense by looking back rather than to the more recent entries and like seeing this as like an entirely independent thing is to me it almost feels like it wouldn't work but i'm glad it does which seeks to its strength as like an independent work that isn't being too devoted to its old self it is okay so here's why it works on its own because it signposts everything amazingly well its level design is out of this world you cannot get into a dungeon you are unable to complete yes which is signposts with literal signposts correct to be fair but that's that works and is good like it'll be very frustrating to not do that absolutely and the reason you don't get lost here is because it took out the ordering. The first three things you have to do, no order. The second half of the game, no order. In any direction you want to go and feel like you want to explore, like it, it made Link to the Past even more free than Link to the Past was. Yeah, Link to the Past had the requirement usually of dungeons were usually in like pairs more or less. You could maybe do one or two out of order, but you couldn't get too far ahead of the curve. Here it's like, there is no curve, there is just everything. And there are some story beats that when they happen in the game between dungeons, they sort of scale up the difficulty of enemies throughout the rest of the game. But that's not a large thing. No. So I don't think it can really be overstated here how well designed Link Between Worlds is as a modernization of an old game it's not a remake it's not a reboot it's telling a completely new story literally in the story narrative itself talking about the events of link to the past separated by you know years and years and years if not hundreds of years but able to then be something that builds on that while successfully guiding new players through all of its language yeah and that is really incredible like the fact that to me this is a game that's deeply about expectations but that it can communicate all the expectations you're supposed to have i guess or a bunch of them at least to someone who's completely fresh to it is much more of an accomplishment than i had realized i think so don't get me wrong i'm not a luddite <laughs> i i have played video games before in my yeah life. you know that zelda exists and that like it's a dungeon based puzzle thing and, and outside of having ever played a legend of zelda game I understand some of the language in it. Hey, that wall has a crack in it. I want to put a bomb in front of it. So, yeah, I'm not the most blind person coming into this game. But with that said, this is still... It was still really easy for me to go through the entire thing. Never got lost. You know, to the point where I enjoyed playing the game so much that I believe I went out of my way to collect all 100 Mayamais, which is the... You know, many, many collectible in this game. Uh, 100 little shellfish creatures. And they're a really cool little feature that I don't want to get too much into, but they do do a good part in, like, expanding A Link to the Past's world because they fundamentally interact with the 3D-ness of them. You generally find a lot of them by 
making yourself into a painting so you can navigate the wall of an environment, putting yourself behind the Mai Mai, the Mai Mai, sorry, and popping out to force them off the wall mm. to collect them. Because you can't pull so them. They, yeah, so they encourage you a lot to interact with the 3D-ness, which generally changes how you think about environments a lot compared to what you already know. So playing with that. But also, when you get 10 of them, you can upgrade an item in your inventory. And often, you get to upgrade a lot of items that in general Zelda history don't get upgrades generally, or don't get very interesting upgrades. And some of them aren't that exciting, like, ah, the bow fires two more arrows. How fun. But some of them do like become much more interesting or make items that are kind of not super cool, like much more useful in combat and things. I is there an analog to the Mai Mai's in Link to the Past? Um, or is it completely new? I will. I'm now trying to remember. I think in that shrine, like in that location where you find that palace in the original game, there is something there that lets you upgrade something. But you don't have the collection aspect, is what I mean. No, I don't think so. It might have been an intense amount of rupees to do something to improve for sure, ability. For sure. Which and it's only one thing that you can upgrade, or two things. It's not yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, it might have been upgrading your bow and arrow bags, your bow and yeah, arrow bag, and your bomb bag, maybe for arrows and bombs. Uh, I just wanted to bring that up because one of the things that the Mayamais do for the game is they encourage exploration. And in this game, has a it has a few ways to encourage exploration. You've got the Mayamais and the fact that money has such a bigger part to play in this adventure compared to any Zelda game. Because you have to buy all the dungeon items from a shop rather than obtaining them one by one in dungeons. Yeah, uh, And because of that, they're relatively free with rupees. It's not hard to get a lot of rupees in the game. But I wanted to kind of talk about that. And let me backtrack to something I mentioned a bit earlier about language, about understanding what the game is trying to tell me. Games have a language in it, and when you play enough of it, you start to learn that. And for someone, perhaps like you, who's played a lot of Legend of Zelda, you start to internalize a lot of the logic that the developers have when it comes to where things are placed on a map, on a world, in relative relation to each other. And one of the things the Mayamais do is it rewards you for going... I'd put a Mayamai there. And more often than not, with 100 of them, you you tend to be right. And if not a Mayamai, you'd find a chest or something, you know? So The Legend of Zelda has always encouraged exploration with, like, chest rewards, rupee rewards, or whatever. Mayamais is just kind of one of the next steps in that, in my opinion, because it tangibly affects your gameplay capabilities in a very direct sense once you collect them. And when we talked about throughline, right, The Legend of Zelda has had a throughline um, that's not consistent across the games. Yeah, they're very much like multiple entries in a franchise rather than direct sequels. Yeah, and so this is one of the examples of how this is really hammering home that the through line we want here is the structure of the story, but also the exploration of the world. That you should feel fun, you should be having fun walking around exploring literal nooks and crannies because you you know go to the and go through like weird gaps between walls and stuff like that. And yeah, I think that now that we've talked about the through line of this, I think it might be time to lead into our wrap up. So, this episode of our podcast, we talked about sequelizing, about how a game 
goes from you know a former entry to a current or a later entry keeps a through line through some of the things that have been interesting that some games have done where you know they strip back some of it they re-emphasize some of it they refocus the game to create in every instance that we've talked about a very similar experience um, while not potentially keeping all of the trappings of the game we started with you know, a bit of a cheat the disgaea series where it is very consistently the disgaea game that focuses on comedic rpg storytelling with a lot of extreme caricatures in terms of the trappings of an rpg the statistics the attack power the health and then how the game really improves quality of life as the series goes on we then moved on to mass effect one to two specifically because of how different the moment to moment gunfighting is in two but how it manages to keep the storytelling vehicle the dialogue system the social aspect of the game consistent and in some ways improved upon and then we moved on to street fighter 2 which when the game was presented with two parts to sequel 2 it decided to focus its efforts more on the player versus player side and refocus a lot of its efforts from ui to playability to really enhance that aspect next we talked about risk of rain one and two where the former is a 2D roguelike and the latter expands into third dimension and somehow the two feel like the same kind of play loop, play process. And then lastly, we looked at A Link Between Worlds and A Link Between Worlds really drew upon the series legacy and used its its denomination as a sequel to indicate that it was taking a different path to what the series had taken before And it really weaponizes that fact it's a sequel to an older game to play with our expectations and use our expectations to create a distinct experience. And with that, thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to talk to us about sequels, what you think are great sequels, bad sequels, and how games can be sequels in different ways, shapes, and forms, you should tweet at the show, at Platinum Pit. We always love talking about this stuff. You can also look at talk to us on our personal Twitter accounts, available in the show notes we also have a facebook page and an email as well if you have any questions you want us to talk about in more detail you can send us an email or a voicemail and we'll talk about this more in the addendum potentially if you enjoyed the show consider recommending it to a friend or if you're feeling especially fancy review it on your podcast service of choice before we finish up let's reveal next month's topic how games manage speed to create drama and tension. We're going to look at Sonic, Bayonetta, Tekken 7, Superhot, and Bungayo. If you have any thoughts on any of these titles and how they use speed for dramatic tension, then we'd love to hear your thoughts on them and include them in the show. You'll have until the end of August to submit your thoughts via email, tweet, or voicemail. And with that, thank you for listening. 